Welcome to an informed live radio on 1150 AM KKNW in the greater Puget Sound region in Washington State and streaming to CHD TV all over the world potentially. So welcome to the show. Uh, I want to I want to start by saying Happy Veterans Day to all of our wonderful people out there that voluntarily, um, you know, pledge their lives for a certain amount of time to protecting this nation and, um, and doing what, uh, doing that very difficult mission. In, in order to honor our veterans, um, how do I, how do I sort of phrase this? It's like, I so much believe in supporting our vets and supporting the great people in our military who do good and, and noble and just work. But as a citizen, here at home behind the scenes, I really believe we honor them best by doing our due diligence and keeping track of what our government is asking our military to do. That's how we best keep them safe by doing what we can to stay actively involved in whatever it is that is happening to the men and women in the armed services and what they're being asked to do around the world. And, you know, on this show, we focus, of course, a lot on health and a lot on the vaccines. And our our people enrolled in the military have historically been asked, not even asked, told, you will get this product. They have historically been given a lot of experimental uh, vaccinations for all sorts of things that citizens never get. There have been health issues um, all along the way with a lot of these. Gulf War syndrome, there was the anthrax vaccine. There's a lot of things that have happened. And now in the age of these um, COVID shots, which are, are not vaccines, um, they are a genetic therapy. Our military, once again, has been subject to these experimental shots. And so I just feel that it's very important for us here to thank them for their service, thank them for doing what they need to do. Some people have decided to um, leave the service rather than get the shot, and I totally respect and admire that. And others have stayed in the service um, and decided to, to get it, and I totally respect them as well, okay? So I no judgment here. We all are on the road of learning and discovery. That's what an informed life is. But we as citizens, I believe, really need to get more active in ensuring that whatever our soldiers are asked to do is truly scientifically safe. It's got scientific integrity. Um, it's just, it's noble, right? And this is a tough mission to have. So lots of love out there to our armed services, to everyone who has served and is serving. Um, thank you um, for all that you do. And I pledge to do more to try to keep you safe as much as I can right here at home. 
Um, we've just got a few minutes and then I'm going to be playing a recording that I did earlier of our guests. Before I do that, I want to tell you about something that I came across here in the state of Tennessee. I was attending a board of pharmacy meeting and I was really surprised when um, a young woman from the Tennessee Pharmacists Association got up and announced that underneath their 501c3 educational arm, the state of Tennessee, the Department of Health had just given them $7.75 million to increase COVID-19 vaccination rates and to push this out through pharmacies, to push this out through social media, to provide $40,000 per pharmacy um, location incentives to get more shots and arms. This is so appalling because you know, even even if these shots were safe, which we know that they are not, we know that they wane within a matter of weeks. You have a couple of weeks of being more susceptible, and then you have um, maybe a couple of weeks, uh, possibly, depending on how you look at the data, of maybe having reduced susceptibility to maybe hospitalization. But then you go right into negative eff efficacy. So all these millions of dollars are being spent for what? For this tiny little window when really we know so many protocols that are so much more safe and effective in preventing severe disease and illness and even infection. We've talked about this many times. I encourage all of you out there in your states to pay attention because money flowing from the Fed, federal government and the state government is now pushing out in these massive campaigns. And it's just absurd at this stage of the game with the state of science that this is what's happening. So uh, that's important to keep us all safe, that we pay attention to where this money is going. Um, okay, so our guest today, um, who will be coming up, I've got two wonderful PhDs that are coming on. One, uh, Stephen Pellick is in Canada on the West Coast. Um, I, of course, am on the East Coast of the United States, and the other is Jessica Rose, and she's in Israel. So we had to record this afternoon so that it was morning for Stephen, afternoon for me, and evening for Jessica, and nobody was up at two o'clock in the morning. So um, very excited. I've got two hours of conversation. We'll have a little break in the middle. And uh, this whole show is all about the spike. It's all about that spike. So I hope you enjoy listening. I know I learned an awful lot. So here we go. Um, here's my interview with Jessica Rose and Stephen Pellick. Hello, Jessica Rose and Stephen Pellick. Welcome to An Informed Life Radio. I'm so pleased to have you with me here today. This conversation came about because I watched the two of you in one hour on a Good Morning CHD program um, about two weeks ago, I think it was. And I was so blown away and I wanted more. It's like, no, it can't be over. So I reached out awesome. to you. To come. Yeah, <laughs> it was so, I've shared it everywhere. It was so good. So I thought, you know, we, we need that information repeated a little bit and we need it expanded. Um, this is really so important. So I'd like to begin here with you, each of you telling um, the audience about yourself. So Jessica, tell us um, about yourself, your background and what brings you to what you're doing today. Uh, all righty. Um, I am Jessica Rose. Um, I'll start from the back and go to the past. 
or, or from the future and go to the past, or is it the present? <laughs> um, anyway, sorry about that. It's late where I am. Uh, I have been doing VAERS analysis, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System uh, data analysis uh, in the COVID context, um, trying to bring the data to the public in, in an ingestible way. Um, my background kind of supports my ability to do that. I'm trained in applied mathematics, in immunology, uh, computational biology, biochemistry, and molecular biology. So I, I've never really had a job. My job has been just to do research um, under the umbrella of academia and publish uh, as much as I can, which isn't very much. <laughs> Me and the peer review process have never really gotten along that well, <laughs> especially lately. Um, and uh, that's me. I surf too. That's my passion. I love that. I think the surfing probably keeps you sane, don't you think? Oh yeah. There's no yeah. doubt. Yeah. Got to have that physical smile. On the face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Keeps you young and beautiful. And, uh, Stephen, uh, what about you? Well, Bernadette, thanks for having me on your program. Um, I'm Stephen Pellick. I'm a professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of British Columbia, where I've been on faculty for 34 years. I'm also the founder of two biotech companies. Uh, the latest one is Connexus Bioinformatics for the last 22 years. And in, in that company, we actually have been conducting a clinical study to look at the levels of antibodies in people. Uh, we've looked at about 4,000 people, and we're looking at whether they produce antibodies against the SARS-CoV-2 virus and also in response to the vaccine. And then I'm also the co-chair of the Scientific and Medical Advisory Committee of the Canadian COVID Care Alliance. And so we're producing a lot of documents uh, going through the literature. The panel that I'm involved in has about 38 medical doctors and scientists. And so we go really in, in fine detail about what's happening in the science space related to COVID-19. So that's my background. I love that. That is such a great alliance. And you've got some great partner alliances here in the States. Yeah. Um, Canada has been doing some fantastic things. I know in the most oppressive conditions mm -hmm. and yeah. the trucker convoy just still just gives me chills when I see some of the videos of, of that trucker convoy. So um, good for you. And I used to be your neighbor to the South there in Washington state. And I saw that you had, uh, trained a little bit at university of That's Washington. Right. Yeah, I was working. I trained for three years at the university of Washington with, uh, Dr. Edwin Krebs, who got the Nobel prize for actually the discovery of protein kinases, which are major drug targets for cancer research and other diseases. And so, uh, it was, it was good, an excellent experience, except I had to commute back and forth between Seattle and uh, Richmond in, in British Columbia, where I lived every week. It was Ooh. like a three-hour drive down and a three-hour drive back yeah. once a week. Yes. Yeah, that's a lot. Sounds like me during legislative session, and I've got about a four and a half hour drive to my state capital, so it gets right. old. <laughs> yeah. So here we go. I would like to divide this. Um, yeah, I've, I've got you for the full two hours. I'm so excited. So let's talk about the spike protein in the first hour and VAERS and other issues in the second hour. I'd like to, to begin with um, 
first explain to us, let's start with the natural, natural, I say in air quotes, wild spike protein and the virus and what we know about its impact impacts on human health. Right. Um, I guess I can start that off. Okay. So, so the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus itself is, um, a relatively small virus, in fact, it's spherical. It has these projections, which are called the spike protein. They're actually in complexes of three spike protein molecules per, per projection. And this is, allows it to bind to target cells because at the end of that projection, it has a portion that recognizes proteins that are found in our own body cells, the ACE2 protein in particular. and the structure of the virus is such that it actually has two other proteins on its surface as well, a membrane protein and an envelope protein. But the genome of the virus actually encodes 28 different proteins. So most of the proteins are on the inside. So when the virus enters into your body, it's going to attach to a host cell via that spike protein and then get inside, and then it'll replicate itself, and then it'll be released from that cell to then infect other cells. So that's the natural progression. And, and when you have this kind of virus encountered in your, in your bloodstream, and, and actually where you really encounter it first is in your airway spaces, you evoke an immune response. So um, neutrophils, macrophages, these are immune cells of the innate immune system. They will basically eat the virus, digest it into pieces, and then present those pieces with proteins that are actually on that um, immune cell called major histocompatibility antigens. And then together the, the, with the MHC antigen plus the fragment of the virus protein, the immune cell travels to, for example, the lymph nodes where it'll have T cells and B cells. These are lymphocytes that, that of your, what we call adaptive immune system. They learn to recognize the foreign threat. And so in this case, the B cells will be triggered to, um, if it has an affinity for that, that foreign piece of the virus protein, it'll then uh, produce antibodies. And it'll grow and divide and produce more cells that produce exactly the same antibodies. So it, what ends up happening is your adaptive immune system can now recognize that virus. So as soon as you get infected again, you've already got these defenses, the T cells, the B cells producing these antibodies that stick on to the virus protein. And that actually makes it easier for the other innate immune cells to recognize the virus and it takes it out. And that's how natural immunity actually works and, and how the virus eventually, um, when you've got that natural immunity, it's no longer a threat. It, it, it's dealt with right at the site of entry, the upper airways and in the, uh, in the lungs, upper lungs. And uh, it doesn't really get a chance to spread through the rest of your body and you don't really get that sick. So what you're what you're saying completely opposes what all governments around the world have been shouting at us is that this was a novel virus and your immune system is incapable of doing anything to protect you because they didn't explain how we have we are born with an innate immune system and an adaptive immune system and all of these if you're healthy and you've got your nutrients up to speed will kick in and and pretty much immunize you <laughs> the natural way. 
And then I also want to get my little two bits in real quick because your first infection is in the airwaves, in the, in the nose and throat. It has been found numerous studies that if you gargle with hydrogen peroxide solution or an iodine solution, you can kill the virus before it even infects you. And it's been done in the hospital in some different studies. And then of course, we all know that ivermectin binds with that spike protein you were describing in, in different ways. And it binds with the ACE2 receptor preventing the virus from binding there. So we do have cheap, readily available um, things that we can use now that will allow our immune system to get through this exposure challenge give us natural immunity and we're good to go. So I'd like yeah, to- I would <laughs> add to that, that um, children don't actually have many antibodies that will recognize these viruses early on. And yet they're at very low risk. And that's because they have this very strong innate immune system that we, that we have too. But in adults, it's less active because we have learned to recognize the virus through our adaptive immune system from exposures to viruses and the SARS-CoV-2 virus is actually a member of the coronavirus family, corona for crown, because of the spikes that are on the surface that look like a crown when you look under a microscope. So, so in fact, what happens is we don't need to have a strong and innate immune system as we get older because we've learned to recognize coronaviruses. And antibodies that we have against these cold coronaviruses, which are very common and relatively benign, they actually can protect us as well against SARS-CoV-2. And so this is where most people that are infected, especially children, have no symptoms. And in the case of adults, there's, there's, the number is hard to tell because, again, it's asymptomatic. But it does appear that probably most people that are infected have no symptoms or very mild symptoms, except for you know the very elderly or those with uh, comorbidities. But if you do have... An exposure, you might be quite sick the first time for a few days, like you would be with a, a cold or, or, or a bad flu, but you recover. And it's not usually life-threatening. It's really for a small number of people where it can be extremely serious. And again, some of the remedies that you've suggested could be helpful. And there's many other drugs that are also uh, becoming on the market that have, have uh, efficacy. Yeah, um, this is very good. Can you explain, um, there's all this talk about, oh, the antibodies waned. Can you explain uh, what happens in the natural course of things if you're not being constantly re-exposed to a virus? What happens to the antibodies and what where T cells come in and your bone marrow comes in and all that later on? Yeah, well, that's, that's a, a full lecture. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll keep it simple. Uh, basically, what happens is when you first get exposed to the immunogen, that, that's the virus with its proteins, then what you'll, you'll get an immune response. It might take about two, two weeks to three weeks to get a, a good, robust immune response that you're producing high levels of protective antibodies. When the threat is gone, then those antibody levels will decline. And in the case of your lungs, and that area and your intestinal system, you produce what's called IgA and IgM antibodies. These antibodies are secreted into those spaces and, and, and basically tag the virus for the innate immune system to take it out. If you have an infected cell, then in fact, your T cells will also recognize 
those infected cells to take them out to stop propagation of the virus. Now, what happens is if you're not continually exposed, the antibodies that are produced in the um, lungs and airways, they last about four to five days. They're very short-lived um, antibodies. When you have antibodies from an injection, say with a vaccine into your arm, you're producing what's called IgG class antibodies. They last about 21 days. They're very effective antibodies, but they're very low concentrations in your, your airway spaces and, and in your upper lungs. So what ends up happening is the virus from a vac when you're vaccinated, you don't have that strong antibody protection that's similar to what you get from a natural immune response. So it's more likely that the virus can actually propagate within those spaces and then be transmitted from those spaces. So that's why people who are vaccinated are actually quite um, capable of transmitting the virus, maybe more so than a person who's actually been um, exposed to the virus before and in fact has a, a natural immunity there it's, it's more difficult actually for the virus to propagate and spread through the rest of their body. Now, the thing is that when you are no longer exposed, those antibody levels decline, but the cells that produce those antibodies, we call those B cells, those lymphocytes, they just hibernate. They go into a state of suspended animation basically. And, and in this resting state, they won't produce more antibodies. So your antibody levels will decline. But there's a certain level of antibodies that you will have that will still be initially protective. So when you get re-exposed, then that triggers those, those quiescent B cells to reactivate. And if there's a lot of the virus, they'll actually go, undergo more cell divisions and produce more of these cells, like a clonal army of cells that are producing exactly the same antibody that targets that. Now, what's happened in our clinical study, what we see is that people who've been infected and we, they had COVID-19, they made antibodies. They, when we measure them a year later, the antibody levels are still very high. And so what I think is going on is that when you're constantly re-exposed to the virus in the natural environment, especially during a pandemic, it just continually reboosts your immune system naturally and you maintain those high levels of antibodies. But in many studies, what we're seeing about even two and a half years after people mm. have been initially infected, they still are producing antibodies. But there's been other studies that have been done with SARS-CoV-1 that caused the pandemic in 2003, that we can still measure their antibodies against that virus in people today. So that immunity can last for decades. That's so fascinating. One more question. Um, explain the role of bone marrow. I recall speaking to a mom years ago whose doctor said that after her child who had cancer and had to have, um, was going to have to be revaccinated for everything after some treatments because what they were going to do was going to wipe out her immune right. system, basically. But shockingly, what happened was after a certain amount of time, after whatever treatment they gave her, she just said, the mother decided, I'm going to get my child tested just to make sure, you know, because she didn't want to over vaccinate the child. And it turned out the child had 
redeveloped immunity. It is something about the bone marrow retain the memory and the ability to, I, I, I guess I don't know the science of it, but I know that. It, I think this is a simple explanation. Okay. Um, basically what happens is with your immune system, when you're irradiated, it's going to be in a certain part of your body, but usually they're giving chemotherapy drugs. So chemotherapy drugs kill fast growing cells, actively growing cells. So when you have immune cells, often they, if they're active, then they're sensitive to the drug if they're undergoing cell division. So like your blood cells are constantly turning over. So you keep needing to make new blood cells. You have about one immune cell for every 400 red blood cells. So that's where you really need to have, um, you have an impact of the chemotherapy. Your immune system is damaged. The cells that are very active will be sensitive to the chemotherapy agents. But as I, I, I mentioned earlier, many of your immune cells, if you're not exposed to the threat, they're quiescent, they're resting. When it's a resting cell, it's not sensitive to these drugs. And so you can still preserve those cells as long as they're not actively growing and dividing at the time you give the drug. Yeah. And I, if I recall this individual, um, some of the things she had been very selective about um, and her child actually had natural immunity to some of these things. And, and that probably had a, um, a role to play anyway. So uh, Jessica, what are your um, comments now? Sorry, on um, on this oh, conversation great. about uh, natural infection and what you know about it. Um, I, I can't really add anything. Um, okay. uh, besides the fact that it's it's been absolutely ludicrous to for me as, as someone with an immunology degree. Like I didn't do one course; I did a whole degree to hear anybody say anything like to negate the existence of this beautiful system that we all have. I mean, it's by far the superior choice if you're talking about a coronavirus that doesn't kill you, in my opinion. I mean, I've always thought about vaccination. I, I By the way, I'm pro-vaccine. Like the concept of inocul inoculation is, is wicked. I mean, you get a small dose of, of an innocuous pathogen and then when you meet the real thing, you don't get sick. I mean, how awesome is that? And it's based on immunological memory. So it's, it's just the fact that people didn't seem to realize that the, the basis of vaccination is on this thing that's already working for you. It's, it's, it's interesting that they just kind of negated the real deal. If, if I, yeah. I'm probably being, but, um, but yeah, that, that stunned me. Um, uh, I, I see that you have the real Anthony Fauci book in your background. Yeah. And I think uh, Robert talks about that. Um, I, I mentioned something about that in a conversation with him. So it reminds me of it, but, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I can't really add anything to it. It's um, besides, you know, maybe something, uh, I know you wanted to keep the politics to the second part, but it's like it, it, it always boils down to the choice of the individual, whether or not mm -hmm. they want to vaccinate or go the natural route when it comes to a pathogen. I mean, especially in this in this case. So I don't really have anything else to add. Right. No, this that's fantastic. And it, and it it really they're trying to well, they have for decades tried to delegitimize the natural immunity choice the terrain theory, you know, they don't want you to 
you know, and I believe that COVID has been used as a vehicle to try to once and for all say that um, choosing to remain non-vaccinated, which doesn't mean you're not immunized, it just means not artificially exactly. immunized, right, um, is not a legitimate choice. But I think it's completely backfired because, you know, what we have seen is really uh, uh, mankind has yet to match the brilliance of mother nature, God, however you want to describe this amazing design we have. And of course, we don't have any die of disease, but when 99.9% .9 of people survive using their natural immune systems and get superior immunity, maybe we should be putting all of our energy into helping those smaller percentage of people who have severe disease and really need... Well, that's um, that's that doesn't make trillions of dollars. So, okay, um, <clears throat> this Actually, is very good. Bernadette, um, just to carry on your point there, I mean, we have a situation now with this fall of a lot of media coverage of this RSV virus and yeah. children are at risk of this virus. And but you know, the reality is that by age two, ninety-seven percent of children have RSV and recover. And in terms of deaths, we're talking about one in 80,000 children under five. And of those, they may well have had comorbidities. So again, this is a situation where this virus is in the environment. Our bodies have adapted to it, even as young babies. And we have very low rates of severe injury from it. It's inconvenient, but it boosts their immune system so they're protected for the rest of their lives. And that's, again, where an example of where your own natural immunity can, can work. Because I'm like, I'm like Jessica, I'll take a vaccine for flu virus because I believe that, that these vaccines are relatively safe. The technology has been around a long time. My issues are going to be really with the COVID-19 uh, vaccines. And I'll get you some information on the flu vaccine and maybe we can change your mind. But you're a man who does your research and go down that rabbit hole. Uh, with RSV, they have had for decades, they've been attempting to make successful shots or vaccines for RSV for pregnant women, infants, um, young adults, adults and seniors. I mean, everybody is in this game and has been for a long time. Several years ago, um, I read a study and I actually um, got to speak with one of the main authors of the study where they were looking at RSV and antibodies, maternal antibodies given to the, to the children, and they found there was no correlate of protection between the levels of antibody and whether the child got severe disease. Um, the, the main correlate they found, if I'm using that term correct, correctly, was exposure to smoke, like secondhand smoke. The communities they were um, examining were poor, rural. They, they cooked a lot outdoors over whatever they could find to burn. So, um, and then and poor nutrition, those sort of things impacted whether that child either got RSV or got severe RSV, the level of antibodies. And so I was I asked this researcher, so why are you trying to boost antibodies when that's not the correlate of protection? You need, they need better environments, right? And I just kind of got a, a look. Well, that's what vaccine makers do. <laughs> they yeah. boost antibodies, whether they're needed or not. <laughs> we are, you're correct. The RSV vaccines have been a failure. However, 
Pfizer has a new one coming out and they've already started their promotion even yes. before they've actually published any data that we can look at from a clinical phase three study. So, uh, yeah. so again, there's a concerted effort underway to get people anxious about this deadly combo of the flu and SARS-CoV-2 and RSV and that you must go out there and get vaccinated against all of them. Yeah, and and there are animal studies that show, like in cows, it, Jeffrey Jackson talked about this on Highwire uh, yesterday, that, and they get a very similar RSV. Um, guess what wonder drug also helps prevent RSV in calves? <laughs> so yeah, ivermectin. Um, because it, you know, the, its mechanism of action seems to be able to work with many mRNA or RNA and DNA viruses. And, you know, here we go again, it gives us a reason even more why there is such a big war against ivermectin, because if the next big lineup of drugs is a shot for every level of life, even in the womb, and ivermectin would negate the need for any of those, well, we didn't need them anyway, but um, there we go. Okay, so we've got like 19 more minutes. Let's move on now. Thank you for that ex excellent understanding of the wild protein. Now let's move to, well, let, let's have an intermediary conversation because we've got the protein in the coronavirus that circulated that may have been genetically, it's looking more and more like it was something out of a lab. And then we've got the protein that our bodies make um, from the mRNA lipid nanoparticle in our cells. So let, let's talk about that. Let's talk about these two lab origin spike proteins, where they came from and how they differ. Sure. Well, Jessica, I'll let you start off on that one. So the, from what we were told and from what I understand, the, the modified mRNA that's uh, used in the Moderna and the Pfizer shots is mimicked after the spike protein from the original strain. So it's, it's meant to be the same uh, genetically, but it's been modified intentionally in very specific ways. Um, there have been two proline substitutions, which keeps it in a prefusion uh, conformation, which it's a trimer, like Stephen said. So it's got like, like I only have two hands. So here, here's toilet paper. So it has like three, <laughs> three identical uh, portions. And so what this, these proline substitutions do is they kind of keep it in a closed conformation. And so the, the RBD can't like stick out. So it prevents binding. Um, it, it's also been intentionally modified by having its uridines replaced by pseudouridines, which basically makes it uh, invisible to the innate immune system that we talked about by uh, evading toll-like receptor de uh, detection, which, which are these little probes on, on, uh, as part of the immune system that detect danger signals from, from foreign proteins or antigens or, or molecules. Um, a few other things have been found uh, that character that have characterized the spike, uh, which we can get into. Uh, um, one before is what, we, one is called, well, before we go there, I would like you to explain the first two changes that they did. What 
how does that impact how your body responds? Because like the one to me, it, it they changed it so that your immune system doesn't really recognize it. So to me, that means it will last longer without your immune system being able to get rid of it. And it potentially can get to a lot of places in the body before it gets shut down its activity. Mm, not, so not you're right. Quite. It makes it well, stable and durable is what I was getting at, but Stephen, okay. please do add. Yeah, well, uh, we've done a lot of work to try to figure out with those proline substitutions, the double proline, you're absolutely correct. It it locks it in a pre-fusion state, which means that that won't facilitate the entry of the virus or the protein into cells, right. but oh. it actually can still bind um, ACE2. Right. And and those and activate intercellular signaling, right? right? And, or block ACE2 receptor so that you're interfering with the normal function of H2, ACE2, right. angiotensin converting enzyme, which is actually to degrade angiotensin 2, which controls yes. blood pressure. So so it has effects that way. But there's these three, the trimer, some of the receptor binding domain for ACE2, some of them stick up, some of them stick down. And we know that even in the vaccine, we have ones that stick up as well as down these ACE2 binding portions at the end of the spike. So the interesting thing is we don't have any X-ray crystallographic structures of the spike protein that's produced from the vaccine. We do right. have the recombinant protein, which is the natural protein. But as Jessica's pointed out, we have these pseudouracils in the RNA, the, the genetic information to make the spike protein, it, this is a non-natural amino acid. You don't find it inside the, the body in messenger RNAs in, in humans. <clears throat> On top of that, we've actually used the genetic code to modify the structure of the RNA. So it has a higher content of what we call nucleotides or nucleosides, which in fact... Um, stabilize that structure even more. And when the vaccine version is, is infected cells and they're producing it, it actually produces a higher, a larger protein than what we see from the virus itself. We think that's due to it, the addition of sugars, but nobody knows. The experiment has been done to deglycosylate that and confirm that it's exactly the same size after the removal of the sugars has not been done. And those sugars themselves are immunogenic. And so we have no real idea of how the body's um, response immunogenically to the vaccine version of the spike protein can be quite different. And one of the other problems is in the manufacturing of the um, vaccine, you're going to have, and this just blows my mind. It's like in the order of tens of trillions of lipid nanoparticles, each having maybe five to 10 copies of the gene to make the spike protein in a single inoculation. And this is, this is magnitudes, thousands or even millions of times more particles that would contain the gene than you would get from an actual virus infection. So your body never sees this level. And the, and the issue is that it looks like in the early manufacturing, the production of the full length gene is actually 
um, is was inefficient and you have impurities, which are shorter versions of that gene. And what locks that protein into staying on the surface of your body cells is this transmembrane domain. This is the very back end of the protein that allows it to stick to the surface of the protein. That can be missing when you have these shorter genes. So now when you're producing the spike protein in your own body cells, they are, not only is it sticking to the surface, which is what they desired, but it's actually being released into the circulation so that that spike protein can travel throughout the body and encounter receptors everywhere, including in the brain. And so you get all these off effects, but you have the problem of the lipid nanoparticles themselves traveling yeah. and, and then producing spike protein at these other locations like the liver, the spleen, the, the adrenal glands, the ovaries, and, and it looks like it's going a lot more places, but these are where we've seen in rat studies that they're more concentrated. The reality is that you, you can be producing the spike protein on those cells and you can be releasing from those cells truncated, shorter versions of the spike protein that engage other receptors throughout the body. So it, the, the levels of the, of the production of the spike protein probably vary by a hundredfold in mm. people because different where, where those, the lipid nanoparticles travel, the size of the person versus how much they're being injected, their metabolic rate, their general health. And so that's why some people are very, very sensitive and they get vaccine injury, and most people don't seem to be. Uh, and these are all factors that are into play. And, and when you have a, a genetic therapy, which is really what this is, we don't actually know how much of the, the final product is produced in the person, but we know there's an awful lot of it. And it's not levels that we see with normal viral infections. And the immune system really has not adapted for this kind of a high level of immunogen. And so when it does see very high levels, it thinks, well, this is this must be part of my own body. I mean, these, these proteins are being produced on your own body cells. So the immune system gets fooled. And the way that the immune system avoids making antibodies against yourself is it kills those B cells that produce those antibodies that are the most protective for, for you from the virus. So what ends up happening with repeated boosters, you're actually tolerizing yourself to the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which means that you're going to be much easier infected in the future. It's doing the opposite of what we desire as you continually do these boostings. So that's, that's, that's really the problem. The, Which is precisely it, what we see in the data, by the way. I, can I just tack one thing on uh, that people should know? 100% with what you just said, by the way. Um, the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, or the RAS for short, is something that we all have. It's a system of, uh, that regulates um, blood pressure and electrolyte levels. It's, it's essential to existence. It's, it's a feedback loop and it's, it's controlled by uh, many hormones, uh, many organs, your, your liver, your heart, your adrenals, all sorts of things are involved. And this ACE2 thing and, and the, the free spike that we were just talking about, the, the very first thing I thought uh, as, as a horror story was that if this uh, spike protein gets free, and start circulating for, for whatever reason, then it will or might have the capacity, or if it does have the capacity to bind ACE2, 
that's going to be problematic for the rest because ACE2 is one of the essential uh, players of this system for maintenance of this system. So that was a very simplified explanation of throwing a wrench in a system. I mean, what's going to happen if you put sand in the engine of a car? It's going to break the engine. So it's, it's kind of like that for me. And uh, I, I think it's probably a lot of what we're seeing as well. Um, so I just wanted to throw that in. Look that up, people, because it's really important. Yeah, say it, say it one more time, because this is relatively new to me, the, the system that the we Renin, have. The Renin Angiotensin Aldosterone System. Okay. Or RAS. <laughs> I, I made a video on YouTube, uh, which hasn't been pulled down yet, uh, yeah, about this okay. like, a year or more ago. So it, it's really... Uh, like a kid can watch it and understand type video. I, I made little little uh, spike proteins and everything. So, oh, that's wonderful. I'll I'll put some links um, in the in this show so people can um, can go check check it out. It's amazing how much how little most of us know about how our bodies work, and it's really amazing how much science has not yet figured out. And to me, the, the the arrogance of thinking they can just launch this brand new technology on the world without really messing things up is beyond yeah, well, me. My problem is that actually we do know a lot. And so yeah. you can, in fact, predict yeah, that's that there's going to be these problems. And we just seem to be ignoring it. So, so like Jessica, I'm dumbfounded that with all the knowledge we have about natural immunity, that it's not even factored in, in public health policies in determining whether or not someone should be vaccinated. So in Canada, you've had COVID maybe twice, you're gonna have great antibodies you know, over the course of the last three years, but you would not be eligible for a vaccine passport because no, you haven't been vaccinated. So you have a superior you know, immune response you're much less likely to transmit the virus, yeah. but it's not recognized to exist. And, and, and this, this yeah. is the kind of thing that I just can't make any sense out of. Well, it's officially recognized here in the state of Tennessee. Yeah, like, some states I, have, and I, some I, European countries did yeah. early on, but yeah. not in Canada. Yeah, we, we got a bill passed. It was my first time here in Tennessee. I've been here about a year and me and two other moms marched into the Capitol the day one of session and said, we want natural immunity officially recognized in this state um, for COVID-19. I'd like it to get it for all, but let's stick with COVID for now. <laughs> and by gum, we had sponsors in the House and Senate on day one and, and we got it through. So, and we had experts come talk about it. Um, so it, we've got a lot of work to do because obviously over the past decades, pharma has done a great job in co-opting, um, everything that nature does better, especially, um, the communications, the media, our public health agencies, why they can get up and promote, um, a pharmaceutical product like a vaccination, but they can't get up and promote vitamin D. I don't understand that. And, um, and only when you look at outcomes, um, there's a wonder, what's that field where they look at human behavior? Um, Psychology. Oh, no, let's see. It's the other one you look at. Okay. So, no. Anyway. Well, the they're big, certainly are modifying human behavior by nudging principles. Oh. Oh, the, the term nudge has been used. They publish studies on how to nudge parents who are hesitant 
about getting shots. Yeah, that, that's a whole other. But I, I guess what I'm saying is when the professed goal that they're shooting for cannot be obtained by their methods, and they insist on doing it anyway, you've got to know that they, they have another goal in mind, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. If, you know, so something's going on here. We've gone only got a, uh, like four or five more minutes. Is that long enough to maybe just at least introduce the subject of, no, no. <laughs> the origins of this, um, you know, because it's, it's different than anything we've seen before. And it is looking like it came, the, the wild one that circulated came from a lab. But then Jessica, that show that you were on, and there was this wonderful discussion about maybe what they did develop wasn't a full-blown virus, but a protein an immunogenic protein, and it somehow contaminated what we, what they were calling on that show, the coronavirus swarm. So all yeah. of the, the respiratory infections that tend to circulate, somehow this man-made protein got in there. Can you speak to that? Well, I mean, um, yeah. we both agree, Jessica and I, it's genetically engineered. And the spike protein would be the main focus of that engineering. But throughout the virus, it's being engineered because the genome, all of these different genes are all on one piece of um, nucleic acid of RNA. That's the way the virus replicates. So I think it's, it's clear from all the various modifications, which, you know, we don't have time to go into right now, but in fact, it's so improbable that this virus came from a bat and then infected another animal and underwent mutations. So it couldn't infect the bat anymore, but in fact could infect humans. It's it's kind of preposterous when we actually see the genetic changes that are in the virus. So I don't think the question is really, well, is that accidental uh, that it got released? Most likely, I would like to think, but nonetheless, the big factor is this is gain of function research and and the whole SARS-CoV-2 pandemic is an example of what could go wrong when you're mucking around with genes to take pathogens and make them more infectious and perhaps more virulent in people. Yeah. The idea that you're protecting the public but what you're really doing is you're you're creating a whole industry and expertise for bioweapons development. So I'll, I'll leave it there. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And just to back that up, that's precisely what this arginine, the PRRA site, the furin cleavage site does for the SARS-CoV-2 version, which is not present in the SARS original chicken recipe version. It makes this more infectious, period. So, and it, there, there you have it. I mean, I, I don't know what else anyone needs to say. This is a fact, what I just said. This site is not in the original version. And it's, it's four uh, amino acids, which means 12 uh, uh, nucleotides, which, which t- to have them all right there with the restriction enzyme cutting sites surrounding it, which is another thing we should talk about. By the way, read the paper called Rapid Reconstruction of SARS-CoV-2 Using a Synthetic Genomics Platform. Um, There's all sorts of stuff we can talk about here, but it's 
exactly what Stephen said. The likelihood that this is all, you know, a chance and it it it, it occurred naturally is 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 zero. It's basically zero. Yeah. There's no so, chance. So they what however they did it in the lab, they increased the infectability of especially that spike protein portion of this virus. And then to me, it seems like they made it even worse when they put it into a shot and they stabilized it and did all these other things to make it go to even more parts of the body and to stick around longer and have more copies of itself. So it's it's sort of like the 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 lab version on steroids now. Yeah. Um, you know. I don't know if I buy the idea that they try to make it so that it would be pathogenic in people. I suspect that there was a genuine effort to just stabilize the RNA because RNA, when you get it, is degraded very quickly normally. And so they would never be able to get the levels of the spike protein to get a good immune response. So I think, mm-hmm. I think what happened was they were, in fact, trying to stabilize the yeah. RNA to make more of the protein. But see, the problem is the regulatory officials, they will allow up to a 50% of that genetic material to be contaminants, which is really truncated versions of that RNA. So you're going to get a lot of these smaller pieces of the protein traveling around. Mm. Even if it's just missing a little bit of the end, again, that allows it to get into the bloodstream. And then as Jessica has pointed out, then you interfere with the hormonal system in regulating blood pressure and many other um, aspects of, of physiology. And so it's not surprising okay. we're seeing all these profound effects in people that, you know, uh, Jessica has, has, has looked at the VAR system and really analyzed for those, those huge gamut of yeah. responses. Well, thank you so much for bringing up uh, VARES and that data, because that's what we're going to go to next. But we're going to be taking a break here. So thank you so much for this first part of the conversation. And when we come back, we're going to head into that data and VARES and vaccine injury. We'll be back in just a bit. Okay, so... During this unprecedented response to an infection outbreak, it has been made very clear that shutting down lives and businesses is not sustainable or repeatable. We've also learned that it's unnecessary. Treatments exist and always exist. For 99% of the population, nutrients and oxidative therapies that support the immune system and improve symptoms are always available to address viral infections. For the less than 1% who need more, Inexpensive, unpatentable drugs can be added to the nutrient therapies to improve outcomes. It's time each and every one of us empower ourselves with this knowledge. We need not ever bring our lives to a halt again. We can both save lives and retain the liberty that nourishes us body and soul. Learn more at HealthyImmunityNow.org. That's HealthyImmunityNow.org. 
Informed Choice Washington is a nonprofit organization that advocates for healthy immunity, medical freedom, and fully informed medical consent. The right to make medical choices without coercion is fundamental to our civil liberties and a basic principle in all human rights declarations. To learn more, tune in each Friday from 3 to 5 p.m. to an Informed Life Radio and visit the website informedchoicewa.org. It's time to take a stand for medical freedom. Go to informedchoicewa.org today. If you're looking for a publication that delivers honest takes and critical insights into the issues of our day, then look no further than The Flame Paper. The Flame Paper is written for the people, by the people, who aren't afraid to challenge a mainstream narrative, be it health care, voter fraud, political correctness, or even the one world government. The Flame is full of timely articles, reports, and expert advice written by freedom-loving, truth-telling experts, journalists, and concerned citizens. To subscribe, go to theflameusa.com. We need a Welcome back to an Informed Life Radio, Stephen Pellick and Jessica Rose. Uh, the first hour, you gave us a great overview of what we know about the wild um, SARS-CoV-2 virus um, that's not completely wild. It does seem the evidence is quite clear that it came from a lab, but then how different the spike protein in the shots is and, and what can happen there. I'd like to move next to, um, to what the, the damage happening with the shots, uh, that is so important. And that is where you have been giving us, Jessica, some really good information. A lot of your work uh, focuses on VAERS and there's been a lot of, let's say, misleading um, information about what VAERS can and cannot tell us. So can you explain to uh, listeners exactly what VAERS is and why there are some circumstances in which the data really can give us some clues as to what's going on? Sure. It's the same answer. Um, VAERS means Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. It's unique to the United States, this particular uh, tool. And it's a pharmacovigilance tool, which means that it's used to detect safety signals, we call them, in data that were not detected in pre-market tests or clinical trials. So it's actually designed to, to do exactly what it's doing right now, which I'll get to. So it's about 30 years old. Its inception was 1990, and it was kind of given as a trade-off to uh, compute complete immunity of pharmaceutical companies from liability. So <laughs> it's not really fair, but it's what we have. And um, it's been very consistent for the last 30 years if you're considering the total number of adverse event reports filed to the system per year for the last 30 years, even if you consider, uh, like when you consider all vaccines combined, and even if you consider that the number of vaccines has been going up, you know, not quickly, but it's been going up every year slightly. You know, every every second or third year, they get a new one on the childhood vaccine schedule. So uh, basically, we're looking at about 39,000 total adverse event reports per year for the last 30 years. Now, 
Let's move into 2021. What happened there? Well, we started the rollout of the COVID-19 products, right? In the United States, the three primary products uh, that were rolled out are the Moderna, the Pfizer, and the Janssen injections. And right now, as of today, or I, I'm sorry, no, this is this is two weeks old because I, I was kind of on a hiatus. Um, we have over 1.4 million reports in the context of three products in contrast to the average for the last 30 years, which is 39,000, as I stated, for all vaccines combined. So again, I don't think anybody needs to do anything more than just think about what I just said and realize this is a huge anomaly. Mm -hmm. And since this is a pharmacovigilance tool, which is designed to detect safety signals in the context of biological products, this should be investigated. Now, when you hone in on the details, let's look at death, because death is probably one of the worst adverse events. It's, it's, I would argue with this because death is the end of suffering, but it's one of the worst that most people would consider. So we're already at a total of almost 40,000 reports of death. Now, the last time VAERS was used to shut down a vaccine due to it causing or being, sorry, let's just say being associated with death, it was done so in the context of a flu vaccine uh, after approximately 50 people died in temporal proximity to, to its administration. So when you compare 50, that's five zero, to 40,000, there's no comparison here. The number that we needed to attain to match that, that shutdown of this product was January, 2021. We had already surpassed 50 deaths of theirs. And I might add that the numbers that I will report here don't factor in the underreporting factor, which is a known problem with theirs. Yes. Many people will argue that theirs is problematic because it's a passive reporting system, blah, blah, blah. And that's true. But the greatest uh, problem with theirs is the underreporting. And as many people, in the medical industry and field know right now, if especially in you're in a if you're in a hospital setting, there is de-incentivization to report an adverse event if causal effects are suspected, which is atrocious. And like breaking the law. Of course, yeah. yes. I mean, Walensky can get in front of the cameras and say all she wants that you must report an adverse event if it is suspected in the context of the COVID-19 products. But at the same time, your, your job is threatened if you do. And this is, this is true. This is actually what's going on. I know because I know a lot of doctors who are facing this. So the underreporting factor itself for death is probably not as high as what I've estimated, which is 31. But even if it's a fraction of that, consider what the actual number of deaths might be in the context of these shots based on this number. These are real people. And this is also an underestimate, I might add. Every number I report is conservative. We have myocarditis, we have cancer, we have hospitalizations, we have disabilities, we have prion diseases, we have menstrual disorders, we have severe adverse events in almost 400,000. We have life-threatening occurrences. I mean, it's it, the list goes on. If you're talking about a safety signal, we have so 
many in VAERS right now. The only one that you've ever heard the CDC or the FDA report on is myocarditis. And when they do so, they call it mild and transient and sweep it under the rug and say it's not a problem. It is a problem. And that's all I'll say for now. <laughs> Actually, Jessica, I'd like to add to what Jessica has to say. Because she was she was talking about well, what's the what's the next case of where we took a vaccine off the market with such a relatively low number of deaths. Even if you look at all the drugs that have been tested, the the worst yeah. case scenario of where they went the longest and allow this drug to be on the market is Vioxx. And after six thousand deaths with Vioxx, that was it, and that was after many years, not just two years. And so when you look at all of the injury reports put together in the last 30 years in the VAERS system, it's for, for over 80 other vaccines, it's still less than all the reports with just these three, as you point out, three vaccines in the US. And this isn't just in the VAERS system. This is in the yellow card system. This is in the European Medicine Agency's reporting system, in the World Health Organization, uh, VIGI access system. The data is yeah. all the same. This is this is not. It, it's a, it's so obvious. People have to question. Well, why is this even acceptable? How has the standards that we've had from our regulatory agencies have been reduced so low? And and this is actually then when we start to get more into the politics, I suppose. But it's um, yeah. it it defies defies logic. Yeah. And, you know, I'm glad you brought up Vioxx because it's really interesting there. Like you said, you named 6,000 deaths, 6, deaths. that were means. reported in the drug adverse event reporting system that finally shut it down. But when that went to trial and it was found that Merck absolutely just I mean, the, the shameful things they did and they were just found criminally responsible for so many shenanigans. Um it was estimated that, isn't it upwards of 500,000 people actually um, probably lost their lives due to this product? So at, under reporting of, of injury, we know is severe just across the board. And a couple of studies have actually shown that the third leading cause of death in the United States is related to a pharmaceutical product. And yeah. to appropriate use of that pharmaceutical product, not to you know, overusing it or whatever, just using it as, as prescribed led to death. We know this. And so what we're talking about with these shots is not out of the blue. It's not, it's, it's just, it, it's why we need to reform regulatory agencies and, and um, they've been completely captured all across well, the, the board. Well, the genetic vaccines are drugs in actual yeah. fact. They are resulting in the production of a product. It's just that your own body is the manufacturing system. And so what's being delivered, you would consider a pro-drug. It's not the actual pharmacologically active in terms of the end result that you want, which is eliciting antibodies. It's, it, mm -hmm. it actually is a genetic drug. And there are different regulations with much more precautions when it comes to when you have a genetic therapy. Mm -hmm, and, yep. and what's interesting is that we, we have actually much lower barrier in terms of what was acceptable with these vaccines, even though they are genetic therapies. 
because they're trying to avoid a disease. We even redefined what a vaccine is to accommodate these particular products. And of course, the liability to the manufacturer in the United States, if it's a vaccine versus if it's a drug, there's much less liability to the manufacturer. So we have this scenario where for the pharmaceutical industry, instead of, of targeting what would be a small segment of the population that has a particular ailment, you're targeting the healthy population. Mm-hmm. So it's everybody. And you're have your product where it has to be constantly boosted. Yeah. So when you think about the size of the market and the liability and the fact that the main advertiser is government, so the taxpayer is paying for the advertising. And if there is any liability, it's going to be, if it does happen, it's going to be paid for by the government, which means, again, the taxpayer. Which is you. In the liability. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. this is this is a... This is why there's going to be so much emphasis now on making sure that you have vaccines for any possible pathogen that's out there. Mm-hmm. And, and the problem is that the underlying technology, that is this, this RNA or adenoviruses, because we haven't talked about that, but that's delivering DNA that encodes RNA, so make even more copies. So then you can make the spike protein from those RNA copies. This kind of, of approach, because it's cheap, and relatively fast and now been shown to be easy to get approvals, uh, we're gonna see more of this technology. And the problem is when you start producing these foreign proteins on the surface of your own cells, and it's necessary to have an attack of your own immune cells against those, those cells expressing the foreign protein, you're gonna get damage, you produce exosomes, it does elicit an immune response, but the problem is you're also taking bits of your own body cells and presenting them with major histocompatibility antigens from these innate immune cells to the T and B cells. And you're, you can potentially educate your immune system to recognize your own body. And so this is really the beginning of autoimmune diseases. So there is one, one case of um, in the original Moderna trial, where they had a, for, for young children, this was a baby that was one years old and right. buried in the supplemental section of that is that this child developed type one diabetes. Well, that happens when your immune system, normally with type one diabetes, the immune system is actually attacking the beta islet cells of the pancreas that produce insulin. And so it kills off those cells and then they can no longer produce insulin for the rest of the life of that child. Mm-hmm. So we don't know how many cases of even type one type diabetes or reduction in control of insulin levels may not be a complete wipeout, but we could be predisposing actually many of our young children yes. to diabetes down the road. Um, so this is this is the the problem. The myocarditis is the infiltration of the immune system into the yeah. heart muscle cells around the heart muscle cells, killing the myocytes replacing that with scar tissue. So the surrounding myocytes exactly. get bigger, the heart gets bigger. It When you're exerting yourself, you have harder, higher blood pressure, more breakage of platelets, more seeding of arteriosclerosis, or you have arrhythmias that are occurring as well. So 
you're, you may not have a, an impact and your heart may recover initially. So it's, as Jessica points out, sympt, you know, the symptoms are mild. There seems to be a recovery, but the underlying damage is permanent. And it just makes it worse yes. later in life, especially when it's the number two killer is cardiovascular disease and stroke. Well, you're basically setting up a person right from their very earliest age to having a lifelong a predisposition to heart disease and stroke. And this is unacceptable when they're at such low risk to begin with from SARS-CoV-2. Which they will need medication for for the rest of their lives, which is good for someone. Um, yeah. I just want to add one thing. The, the, the point about um, the, the data growing in all sorts of uh, adverse event data collection systems all over the globe, they are very, very, very synchronized. Um, this is not a coincidence. This is happening all over the world. And this satisfies one of the Bradford Hill criteria, which is this thing that you use to show evidence of causation in biological or epidemiological data, which again is something that the regulatory bodies have always done in the past and are refusing or neglecting to do now. I've, I've satisfied all 10 of these criteria in a presentation that I've given. There's temporality, there's uh, plausibility, there's coincidence. Anyway, I just wanted to say that. Um, and and before I forget, I really wanted to ask you, Stephen, uh, what you know about infectious clone technology, if we have time for that, because it's it's you brought it up, Bernadette, with the um, the swarm idea that we were discussing with JJ and uh, and Robert Kennedy on this call way back when. It's not my theory, but uh, I, I've been doing a little bit of reading about what this is, but I'm no expert on infectious clone technology. So if, if you happen to know anything, I'd love to hear uh, if we can open that discussion up, if we have time. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it right now. Well, um, I'm actually not that familiar with infectious clone technology, at least okay. by the name, but I probably know by the mechanism. Um, can you tell me a little bit more? Yeah, I'm going to read something for us. Uh, it's uh, a virology blog uh, called uh, Infectious DNA Clones by someone named Vincent Racaniello. Um, first of all, he says that this is not new. Infectious clones of viral genomes were initially produced in the late 70s. First one was made in 78 by inserting a DNA copy of the RNA genome into, uh, of a bacteriophage, QB, made with reverse transcriptase into a plasmid vector. Infectious, infectious virus was produced when the cloned viral DNA was inserted into E. coli. That's the mechanism. In 1980, uh, an infectious cloned retroviral DNA was produced by inserting the integrated viral DNA from the cellular genome into a plasmid vector. The next year, a DNA copy of the RNA genome of poliovirus was produced by reverse transcription and inserted into a plasmid vector. When the cloned copy of the viral genome was introduced into mammalian cells, infectious virus was produced. So um, we were on a call the other day and one of my colleagues, uh, JJ Cooley, uh, came up with, he, he has a theory that perhaps what we're dealing with here is an infectious clone as opposed to a virus. Now, I hope I got that right. Um, and if that's true, then what I understand about that is that, uh, first of all, we have like an in infinite supply of something very infectious uh, that was designed, uh, and it could have... Uh, uh, very high mortality rate. Um, 
and it, it kind of could be deployed uh, on command. So I'm not sure I have it all right. I haven't had time to 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 really ponder the idea yet. But the 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 other component to this is that if this is what happened, if it could be what happened, then the reason why it's played out the way it has is because it's integrated into this coronavirus swarm that we have, which is like the the, the groups of different coronaviruses that that already exist in in the environment and in our um, virons, I suppose. Um, so that's why it hasn't been completely devastating if it was originally designed to be very infectious and uh, and dangerous. So those are just my thoughts and comments on what the discussion was about. So I, I don't know if that gives some um, Well, I mean, historically, uh, you have Yersinia pestilis, which, you know, the plague that, you know, wiped out probably a third of the population of Europe in about 1448 or something like that. I mean, that was actually a plasmid where the bacteria acquired it from the host. And it's actually right. an enzyme of a phosphatase that does the opposite of protein kinase is it, it dephosphates proteins. And it turns out that that enzyme, it, 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 it gets clipped in humans by a, a, um, protease, uh, an enzyme that cuts proteins in human blood that doesn't exist in fleas and in rats. And so right. that, that bacteria, Yersinia pestilis, which has basically this, this host in, in the evolution of that to become a more pathogenic mm -hmm. bacteria, that, that basically then allowed it to then um, start to have all these profound effects that it's, it's extremely lethal. So doing genetic engineering like this with a plasmid in a bacteria, it is feasible that you could create much more pathogenic bacteria. But bacteria, we've seen, for example, with SARS-CoV-2, that we've had these variants, that one variant very rapidly, Delta was replaced very rapidly by Omicron, B, BA1 and then BA2. And now BA you know, four and five are here and, and there isn't any, like there's no Delta and there's, there's really no BA.1. This kind of displacement is when you've got an environment, there's all this competition. So most of the mm -hmm. bacteria that are out there and the viruses that are out there have already gone through this competition and they have to be very infectious and they have to be benign. They have to not actually kill their hosts. And so this is a exactly. natural progression. So when you introduce these kind of um, pathogenic type bacteria, let's say, or viruses, they actually have to compete with what's already out there. And our immune systems have also learned to be very adaptive. So it's actually not that easy creating these kind of viruses. The more deadly it is, the less likely it's actually be able to Successful. spread the population. Yeah. Yep. So I, I'm I'm not worried about the virus at this point. I think that there's always going to be people that are going to be sensitive, in particular because of their comorbidities. The virus might be the mm -hmm. final thing that takes them down, but they're already in bad shape to begin with. They're you know, like, for example, yes. the dinosaurs. I mean, we hear this story. 
65 million years ago, an asteroid hit the Earth and wiped out all the dinosaurs. But the mammals stayed and, and the reptiles and the amphibians. Well, you know, it's it's much more complicated than that. It's more likely that there was, from being around a lot longer with the dinosaurs over 500 million years, that they had viruses that adapted to the dinosaur physiology where these weren't as prevalent for the mammals, for example. So when you have mega volcanoes exploding or when you have, um, and, and giving basically nuclear winter periods or that asteroid hitting the earth 65 million years ago, it was just one extra element in right. what was already going on. And the viruses at the end were probably what really took them out. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. wow. <laughs> I just love where conversations anyway. go. You have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would like to know with both of you, um, what's your exciting focus? What are you working on now? Um, Jessica, probably Data and Stephen, maybe in the lab. I would love to know what you're learning about all of this and, and hopefully something that gives us hope that we can use to educate, to end this, to heal, to stop it from ever happening again or wherever we want to go with it. <laughs> oh, there's so many lessons to learn from this. I mean, yeah. I've been working in my lab on looking at drugs that interfere with the replication of the virus. And we've we found some that look very promising. Um, but then but there's research going on all around the world to this this effect. And, and and in fact, even when we decide that we won't vaccinate people, we could in fact have all these medications and, and treatments, some of which you've already mentioned, that can help a person as they get sick. And and so that that is, I think, very positive. On the other side of it, uh, we've been trying to do these uh, studies of the degree of natural immunity and vaccine-induced immunity. So hopefully we'll learn our lessons from this. I've been very careful in the publication because we've had 4,000 people tracking them for two and a half years. But I have to make sure the data is really, really solid because it's so controversial. So... I'm working on that front in my lab. And then I think in terms of lessons to learn from this, this in a way, COVID-19, as disruptive as it has been, it's actually revealed so much about how our healthcare system works, how the government seems to work, how our media seems to be working or not working, in fact. And, and so... I think we have to learn from what we've been seeing here and recognize that these systems need to be fixed and we need to pay more attention. And in fact, the, the directions that we're going with our society really needs to be reevaluated and determine whether or not, is this really the, the directions that we want to go or should we be doing more remedial type action? And I, I would also want to comment, I am concerned from all of this about what this means about reproductivity. Mm. You know, we, we've heard about how the planet, we, I think we've, we've just passed 8 billion, peop billion people on the planet. Just in the last, last few weeks, it's been estimated. So we talk about overpopulation. But in fact, um, these vaccines, and they seem to actually be reducing our 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 
fertility rates, right? We've got 40% of women that are vaccinated appear to have um, menstrual issues, prolonged periods, heavy bleeding. We know that the, vir the vaccine nanoparticles do go to the ovaries. We are hearing now that there's a 10% drop in fertility in the last year overall. We're, we're now also seeing in males about a 10 to 15% drop in sperm counts, mobility, um, the uh, viability. There's always been a drop in male sperm counts for the last 30 years, but it's only about a 0.5 to 1% drop. But to have in one year a, a 10 to 15% drop, at least for three months, there seems to be recovery. But if you're a woman with oocytes and you have damage to the ovaries, that is not recoverable. You're born with all the oocytes you're going to have, something like about a million, but you only have 400 periods. And one oocyte or two are prepared so that it can be fertilized. If you're holding off having your children, and because and we do that because you know careers, education, and then you know establishing a job, and then a little bit later in your life decide to go, this is when I'm ready to have children. You you may not be in a position to have children anymore because you will have used up all the oocytes because the damage that occurred early on means that you have a fewer number to begin with. So. Mm -hmm. All of these factors come into play. So I don't think we're going to see the real repercussions of what's happened here. It's not going to be obvious for, we'll see a little bit the short term, but I think the long term, it may take 10 to 20 years before we really see the true impacts of this. And I think the handling of this pandemic will be seen as one of the worst cases of mismanagement from the public health authorities in the history of medicine. Agreed, 100%. Yeah, and I'm a little depressed now to say it mildly. <laughs> Jessica, um, what are you working on? What, what are your big projects to help us have the data we need to go to our legislators to say we got to... Uh, somebody said to me once, it's not that the system is broken and that we need to fix it. The system is fixed. We need to break it <laughs> and and start mm -hmm. over. So, but to do that, we need real data. And that's what they've been keeping from us. They've been keeping the real data from us. You can't have good public policy if you don't have accurate data. So bless you, Jessica, for bringing us some data. What you working on? Um, well, it, it's in line with that, actually. Um, I actually just got back from giving a talk um, in Portugal, and I extended that into a, a little uh, week-long hiatus, like I mentioned. Um, I talked about mRNA in this, in this thing, but I do talk about fertility a lot. Um, so that's where I left it hanging. But just yesterday, I was on a call with with uh, a serious bunch of Canadians, and uh, I, I've managed to get myself um, uh, some FOIA requested data. Uh, I can't talk about it, um, but I'm working on that now. So th this <laughs> it's one of the things that's so annoying about being, um, especially a data analyst right now, because. So much of the data is is just not being, there's no transparency. You have to FOIA request everything, which means Freedom of Information Act request. 
we are entitled as the public, we're paying for all this anyway, we're entitled to have access to clinical trial data if we're being told we have to get injected with something, you know, in order to work, we should be able to know what the data showed, right? So they, this, I'm speaking about Pfizer right now and also about this new data that I'm going to be looking at, but it's, um, these are the things we have to do now. This is the, like the new, uh, <laughs> the, the new way of doing things. Um, and and I and I love that you're being cautious about getting the data really strong when you publish because there's so much retraction and withdrawal going on. Um, like I, I'm not saying it's still not going to happen, but it's going to be become much harder uh, in the days to come, which is my optimism because uh, a lot more people are starting to see that that things are really not adding up here. Uh, regulatory bodies aren't functioning. Uh, bureaucrats are making medical decisions. I mean, there there are no rules anymore. Um, everything's been bastardized. So um, I think it's going to be uh, a, a better road ahead in terms of getting things, getting data published, uh, getting more data, using that data in uh, legal contexts in order to to improve our situation and to change policy because you're right. I mean, we, we, we need to break this system. It is fixed. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I agree completely that this is a big mixed blessing. Uh, it, it's revealed so much. I mean, um, I don't consider myself naive. Well, I, I do, but I don't. Uh, and, and I've just had so many things that I firmly believe two years ago flipped on their heads, like in terms of uh, who I can trust in terms of journals, even who I can trust in terms of scientists. It, it's, it's um, so it's good and it's bad. I mean, yeah. Um, so I'm working on some, some, uh, some composite data right now. It's going to take some time and I'm sorry, I can't really say much about it, but um uh, in the meantime, I'll be releasing uh, updates on VARES, as as depressing as it is, and uh, publications are are still coming in, even though uh, it's it's a tough time getting something through the peer review process right now. But the, the, you know, papers are being published that are confirming what me and and everyone else uh, fighting for truth and science have been saying for a long time. So. Um, I'm still waiting on the integration paper to come out <laughs> in terms of, you know, the genetic stuff, but, um, yeah. yeah. Well, I, yeah. This no show's problem. theme is that we, we need a revolution. We need a health revolution, a peaceful revolution. And you two are a big part of that because what we have represented in you are two very ethical individuals who observed what was going on and using your expertise, you're going forward to do your work in the best manner you know how and to share the information. And this is part of that revolution. What they've done so brilliantly is to block our ability to share this quickly. Um, but, you know, if we have to do this by um, Pony Express, we will. If we have to deliver this, Everybody write it down, you know, run down the road, hand it to your neighbor, run down the <laughs> right? We will get the information out there. Um, 
So, Stephen, I, I think I heard you try to speak, and I might have talked over you. Yeah. You had a response? Well, I was just thinking, I just wanted to bring up, Bernadette, the science will ultimately prevail. We'll eventually get to the bottom and the truth. And what I'm seeing is an interesting phenomenon now where public health officials are realizing that their narrative has continually changed. Because as, as you know, early on, the virus was deadly and the vaccine was very efficacious and very safe. And it prevented you from transmission and, and getting really sick. And that, that whole narrative is breaking down. So, but there's efforts now, and in Canada, we're seeing this, where there was a paper just published in a journal that's produced by the, the um, Canada Public Health. And so Theresa Tam are basically our, our country's, you know, um, the uh, I guess public health officer for for the country, she's co-author on this paper, and so what they're saying now is, had they not done these vaccinations and done these um, restrictive measures that have been pretty draconian in Canada, I'm, I'm amazed that these things got through, that we would have had instead of 4,700 people die officially, of which probably half of them died with but not from COVID we would have had 800,000 deaths. That's the narrative <laughs> that they're putting out now, which, which basically- And what are they basing that on? Well, there's, they're, they're basing it on a 1% lethality rate, but actually when you calculate it out for the population in Canada, about you know, 38.25 million and the number of actual deaths, it's, it's somewhere around a one in, in 40 chance of dying from COVID-19 in the general population. So it's gonna include the elderly, but it also includes the kids at low risk, one in 40. Oh. I mean, this is, this, this is, these are the numbers they use to create their models to then justify what your public policy is going to be. And then of course they say they err on the side of caution, but, but in fact, they're looking at worst case scenarios using modeling and they have been doing this throughout the pandemic that is completely off the mark whenever mm -hmm. you look back at their previous predictions you realize that they were far off the mark but this is what's guided public policy yeah. and this is why it's important to have good science that better informs what your 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 parameters and your modeling is going to be but even now you know 800,000 deaths if we didn't do what they said I mean, it's just boggles mm -hmm. yeah. my mind. There's no uh, credibility anymore. No, no. And and if you look at the deaths that did occur and you exclude those individuals that were given the most improper treatments, they weren't treated early. They were put on drugs that made things worse. They were put on the yeah. ventilator. They weren't given HBOT, ivermectin, early treatment. But, you know, all of the things we know now, and it's still going on. We're still getting deaths where they we should not be getting deaths. So it's such a complex picture. They want to simplify. Either you have to do everything we tell you to do or billions of people will die you know and it has to be worth it the big cover-up i guess is what is underway and hopefully this is what i'm saying enough. we're, we're yeah. going to be seeing that there should be no apologies even though we've had all of this disruption in our economies in in our treatment of our other diseases in the psychological trauma that the population has endured and the economic really um 
out uh, fallout all of this that the people that were in the know and it's a very small number of people that were really driving this when you really when it really boils down that were dictating basically these policies that were being spread by mm -hmm. or local officials in different jurisdictions provinces states whatever it, it, it's really remarkable and so there has to be accountability and while i do believe that there's forgiveness that you have to do to everybody else that's out there that you know they're victims too whether you're vaccinated you're probably going to be a victim because of the the effects of the vaccines or whether you were not vaccinated and so you were subjected to discrimination most of us are victims most of us have been informed by what's in the media you can't fault those people you have to give them you know latitude and forgiveness but i think we have to make our high officials that had those jobs and high responsibility accountable and so this is where i i think as time goes on we're going to have more of these hearings and we're going to get a better sense of what really went on um accountability and i would add this so many people have had um family members former friends now individuals be horrifically ugly mean evil to them i do not it, i it's not that I can respect somebody who disagrees with me, but when that disagreement turned ugly, and it was always the ugliness on the side of the people who wanted to mask and wanted people to get the shots. I was on street corner with signs about liability and ivermectin, and people would roll down their window and flip me off and say they hope I died. A lot of times they said they hope I died of smallpox or polio, because I don't know, you know, they just kind of lump you in this that you, <laughs> I mean, it's really funny, not funny, but um uh, it's that ugliness. So I think we have to get to a place in society where we have polite, respectful civil discourse, where discourse on the subject of how to protect yourself from communicable infection has got to be out there in a public way to be discussed. And, and, and difference of opinion need to be respected. This ugliness that has been driven by the media for us to be so evil to each other, that, that's where we lost our humanity. You know, the, the, letting grandma die alone in the hospital, how did we lose our humanity that that happened? Um, and those conversations, that's where we need those like truth and reconciliation sort of conversations so that we don't repeat this ugliness ever again. So Jessica, um, final words? Yeah, it's the cultiness that got into science. Um, it, it's really insidious. Um, yeah, and, and I think for, you know, if and when we get to the other side of this, the, the psychologists and psychiatrists are going to be writing books for decades about what happened here. Um, like, seriously, I, I can't figure it out. Uh, I, I'm, I have some good ideas, but I think there's a lot of brain chemistry issues going on, yeah. a lot of manipulation, a lot of psychological ops, uh, for reals. I really do yeah. think that. I was I was going to say something and now I've forgotten completely. Oh, uh, what you just said, Stephen, was exactly what I just said. I swear to you, if you watch the episode of the interview I just did, I just said exactly what you said. Um, the forgiveness thing, we have to embrace that because that's the way out. I really believe that. But the people who knew 
who were uh, denigrating, who willingly did harm, they need to be held accountable. Uh, the, the, the people in the regulatory uh, body positions, they all know what we're saying because me and a bunch of other people are emailing them every day and we're making sure they're getting our emails. They know, they know what's going on and we're being completely ignored. So uh, if you keep going ahead with something that's very likely causing people to die, then, then that's, that, that's akin to murder in some, yes. you know, people's like perhaps some judges. <laughs> yeah. So um, th this is the kind of thing that uh, that we need to keep in mind. We, we we need to be bigger than ourselves right now. I think as a human community, because a lot of mistakes were made, but a lot of forgiveness has to be had because a lot of people really did make mistakes. I'm not saying the people screaming at you and telling you uh, that you should die are in that group. I think that that's deplorable behavior <laughs> but then you know we could get into a discussion about uh people need to go back to being polite and and have uh, intelligent yeah. discourse instead of uh using ad hominem attacks and and using bad words <laughs> all the time yeah so, um and I think that's a really good place to leave it because I think a lot of the worst of what happened could not have happened if civil discourse on the subject of vaccination and how to treat and public health policy for communicable infections, if that had been allowed to happen at all levels. So that's what we need to achieve. We need to be able to have checks and balances and have civil discussion on this topic. And then this sort of thing cannot um, happen again. So with that, we are out of time. So Jessica Rose and Stephen Pellick, it's been such an honor and pleasure spending a couple of hours with you today. Thank you um, for all that you're doing. Go forth and continue to do it some more. And when you have some information, know that you're always welcome to come back to an informed life radio. Take care. Thank you. Thanks so much again. It was great. And there you have it. There was my wonderful two hours spent. And I had a little time before and a little time after with these amazing individuals. I just want everybody to take heart behind the scenes and you might not see them. You might not be aware of them. There are fantastic people who are working hard to do good science, to get the truth out, to really change and be that peaceful revolution that we need um, to happen. That That is happening. It is underway. There are so many good things coming up, like a parallel society to replace this fractured, captured system with something new and better. It really, um, it really inspires me. It, it, makes me really, it restores my faith in humanity. We can do this, but we really do need that forgiveness to happen, but that forgiveness has to happen in a place of dialogue, of everybody talking about what happened. And as I said um, earlier, we have to talk about how awful some of the things were that we did out of fear or that those who were pushing the, the narrative, which we know was a false narrative, 
people were pushed to behave in very inhumane and uncivil ways. So many of us are, we're very happy to forgive, but if, but that has to be acknowledged. Conversations has, have to happen because we don't want this to repeat. Humanity will always be faced with, with new challenges where there's going to be different views about how to approach it. And we must always learn how to be civil in that discourse. Of course, we got to this place in particular because for decades now, it has been the official policy published in the Federal Register and the policy throughout the land, whatever the United States does regarding health and public health, most other nations follow. And that is to silence anything critical of the vaccine program or vaccine product, no matter how factual, in order to preserve faith in the program. And this has proven to be so disastrous, absolutely disastrous, because people are believing the propaganda, they're believing the lies, they are, their minds are clouded against having that civil discourse. And that's what we need. And I think this is achievable. We can, and we start right where we live. We start having those conversations. The more you talk about this in public with individuals and and then make public comment, the easier it gets. At first, it is scary because we have been made to fear public conversations about things we disagree with. And that's that has to be overcome because the fear is a, of discussing it has been artificially created. We should not fear respectful conversations about differences of opinion. We shouldn't fear debate. We should welcome and relish debate. Our health system should be based on a system that um, is all about engagement and discussion and conversation and wrangling them out. That's the heart of science. That's what propels human humanity forward. I also wanted to make sure I that... Um, that viewers who are new to the Canadian COVID Care Alliance, where our guest Stephen, um, he's with this fantastic group, because a lot of you are aware of the, the great organizations here in the United States, but Canada has got really some wonderful um, individuals who are speaking up, standing up, and creating great materials. So if you're up in Canada or you've got relatives up there, let them know about this. It's the Canadian covidcarealliance.org, canadiancovidcarealliance.org. And they say their catchphrase here is independent science-based evidence to empower Canadians. And as bad as we have it here, it, it's it's been just even worse up in Canada. But there, there are signs of hope. There are some new leaders in some of the different provinces that have been speaking out against some of the atrocities that the government has perpetrated. And the good people up in Canada are educating themselves. They're stepping up. They're refusing to be intimidated. And, you know, they're a free nation, as are we. And they're working hard to take their nation back. As, as we need to as well. Today being uh, Veterans Day, again, let's come back to the fact that, you know, great individuals, mostly our young people, 
have dedicated their lives or dedicated a part of their lives to serving us, to, to serving citizens, to serving this nation, to go out and fight for, you know, truth and justice and freedom. And we have seen, um, we have seen their devotion to this nation not be rewarded properly by, let's face it, a lot of them being used as as guinea pigs they have for years, having to line up and get experimental shots. And I tell you, I would love to see a revolution in how we treat our military. I think that the food the military is given should be the best organic, most nutritious, nutrient-dense food that there is. And they should get the most holistic healing protocols. And they should be the last to get an experimental shot because we need to make sure they are strong and in fighting condition. And also because we respect what they're they're giving, we want them to come home as healthy as possible and they continue to support their health when they are here because we know that you know there is psychological trauma involved often with with serving your nation in the military and there's also physical trauma that can happen and we need to respect that so thank you for letting me get on my little soapbox here today but it is veterans day and you know it as a young person, even up in, into my 40s, I was not, I was, a, I guess, a little naive and oblivious to how important, how important it is to pay attention to freedom, medical freedom, um, freedom of speech, so many different freedoms. I didn't understand. I was, I'm still a bit of a Pollyanna. I, I believe in humanity. I do, I believe in the goodness. I believe in um, good will triumph over evil. And truth will triumph over falsehoods. But I've really seen that only can happen if we pay attention, if we become active. And, you you know, within your own comfort zone. So we just had an election, right? So all of us now are watching to see who are our newly elected officials who represent us, represent us at state, at local you know, county, state, and federal level. And now is the time to start having a conversation with these um, people that just got elected because you know who already has appointments are all the lobbyists. And so you want them to hear your voice. They represent you, not the lobbyists. And with that, I think it is time to uh, end this program. So thank you so much for tuning in to an informed life radio on 1150 AM KKNW and CHD TV. Have a wonderful weekend and God bless. Insights into the issues of our day, then look no further than the flame paper. The flame paper is written for the people by the people who aren't afraid to challenge a mainstream narrative, be it healthcare, voter fraud, political correctness, or even the one world government. The Flame is full of timely articles, reports, and expert advice written by freedom-loving, truth-telling experts, journalists, and concerned citizens. To subscribe, go to theflameusa.com. Hi, I'm Lynn Redwood, president of the nonprofit Children's Health Defense. Our chairman, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and our entire team are devoted to ending the epidemic of illnesses and disorders plaguing our children today. Through legal action, we're working to hold industries and government agencies accountable and to establish safeguards to prevent further harm. 
We're working overtime during this COVID-19 crisis to keep you informed about the politics and science of Rush vaccine candidates. Freedom and our children's futures have never been more in jeopardy. But we can succeed. With your help, we can stop the devastation and give our children and grandchildren the healthy future they deserve. To learn more about what we're doing and how you can help, visit childrenshealthdefense.org and sign up for our free news. Please visit childrenshealthdefense.org today. Are you suffering from a sinking feeling that the COVID-19 pandemic is being blown out of proportion and that nothing in the news is making any sense? If so, then there is a fact-based, science-driven news show designed just for you. My name is Del Bigtree, and I am the host of The High Wire, the world's most trusted news source in digital media when it comes to accurate, science-based reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic. From COVID-19 vaccine development to mask mandates, school shutdowns to job layoffs, The High Wire goes beyond providing you with the most accurate, evidence-based investigations. We send you links to the sources for all of our reporting so that you can further your own investigation and come to your own informed conclusions. High above the agenda-driven circus of mainstream media, we do not run. We do not hide from the truth. Instead, we walk the high wire. If you care about truth, then join us on Instagram, Twitter, Roku, and our website, thehighwire.com.